Welcome to Body Matters Podcast, where we bring to you raw and inspiring content on all things to do with body positivity and eating disorder recovery. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as traditional people and traditional owners of this country. We acknowledge with gratitude First Nations communities for their continuing care and connection to the lands or waters with which they have protected for thousands of years. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. On this week's episode, I am pleased to introduce you to our next special guest, Shannon Calvert. Shannon is an independent lived experience educator and advisor and has made significant contributions to both government and non-government sectors in an advisory capacity. Shannon has held several roles, including the lived experience and co-production co-lead of the Australian Eating Disorder Research and Translation Centre, the co-chair of the WA Eating Disorder Network, and co-chair of the Eating Disorder Peer Workforce Guidelines Working Group with the Butterfly Foundation, where she is also a special advisor to the National Women's Health Advisory Council. On this week's episode, Shannon shares her story spending over three decades of struggling with long-standing eating disorders. So please welcome our next lovely guest, Shannon. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Shannon. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Jess. It's lovely to be here. Would you be able to provide a little background information about yourself and maybe speak about some things that you like to do to stay well? So, um, oh gosh, it's um, such a lovely question, and more the latter part in the, uh, what do I do to stay well. So, um, so a little bit about myself. I'm originally from South Africa, but I um, immigrated to Australia in 1992, so that was quite a while ago. Um, I work across various different settings, so predominantly as a lived experience educator and advisor. So um, I work in both the um, predominantly in eating disorder and mental health space, but also um, in palliative care. And so I work across different areas of sort of providing advice and guidance around embedding lived experience engagement. But I've had um, the wonderful opportunity of working as a peer support worker in community mental health and to juggle quite a lot of different balls, but it's um, a wonderful opportunity. Um, I'm a dog mum of a little shih tzu called Lulu, who's my little godsend, and I live in Perth, Western Australia. Um, my the work predominantly in my uh, lived experience um, in the lived experience space is based on having a history of a severe and enduring eating disorder and other complex mental health challenges, including trauma, um, which I have gratefully um, walked and, and survived and continue to heal from. And I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit about you growing up in South Africa. How was that? Um, oh, gosh, you know, there's so much to be said about Africa in itself. Um, it's a beautiful country. Um, bearing in mind, I did grow up in um, sort of the more suburbia city of Johannesburg. So um, it was a lovely childhood. I was, um, in terms of um, having, you know, um, having no issues and challenges, because I know we tend to hear different things about South Africa, but um, 
you know, I, you know, it was very happy there. Um, it was home at the time. So, um, and then of course we had this wonderful advantage of um, if every now and then we could go on holiday, we could go further up into Africa where you're sort of, it's the Africa that you would envision with um, all sort of the wildlife and that. So that was just a, a beautiful opportunity that um, fortunately people outside of South Africa can take a, can have an um, advantage of if they can get there. Um, so yeah, that was lovely. And then um, but school, there was a lot of pressure on school. So, so, so school, the education levels were very high. And so school was um, a, a really important uh, part of a child's growing up in South Africa as well. So had high levels of education. So it was quite a bit of pressure there, but I think there's pressure in all schools these days. So yeah, yeah sounds like yeah. a very different part of the world. And even being able to go to Africa, um, mm -hmm. yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah, look at that. If anyone ever had an opportunity to go, I think it is absolutely lovely to see South Africa. There's so many beautiful parts of it, but I think um, if you can ever go up further into Africa and see some of the wildlife, it's there's nothing like it. Yeah, definitely. So each week on the podcast, we do like to ask our guests about a recent challenge that they've experienced and how they have managed to overcome it. Do you have one? Gosh, um, do you know, I have to be incredibly honest in saying that I probably face quite a few challenges on a daily basis in the type of work that I do. Um, not that that's a negative thing. It's just more finding a way to work through them, understanding that not everybody um, comes with the same understanding. So of course, if I come in with a lens of um, a, sort of a, in a designated lived experience role, I, I wear that hat, I'm more informed and have a deeper understanding where I appreciate that other people in different areas of expertise don't have that understanding, yet they'll have an understanding of their area of um, expertise. And sometimes it's about finding that middle ground. Um, at times I can you know, appreciate there's so many challenges that we all have to face, there's priorities, there's deadlines. And at times it's that frustration of, of wondering, am I articulating my understanding well or fr be feeling frustrated if I don't understand where the other person's coming from or vice versa and you know I realized I didn't respond to that first part of your question when you said what do I do to to keep well oh. <laughs> I think it's actually funny enough it morphs into that question into this question it's about recognizing that this whole learning trajectory is an ongoing thing for all of us um, and sort of embedding lived experience at a level of where we can sort of make collective decision making and understanding is about finding a middle ground so that we can work through that process collectively and so for me I don't always manage uh, mindfulness skills very well but I think it comes back to uh, feeling grounded and reminding myself why it is that I do this work when I do that or I take an opportunity to stop and breathe and um, allow myself to make mistakes and realize I'm only human as, as is anyone else, then um, it helps me to move forward. So those challenges at the moment specifically because of it coming to the end of the year and really high priority projects are probably something I'm facing on a daily basis, but they're also really important learnings and I have to say because of them it's supported me to think about actually what needs to happen next in the context of my work so yeah and you would need to take care of yourself as well with all the traveling that you do you know yeah, yeah. well fortunately that's going to ease off a bit um that's been 
that's been actually a really lovely opportunity. I think that the it sounds glamorous. I think the only challenge when it comes to um, systemic advocacy is you tend to travel to different states, but you sort of get on the plane, um, you get off the plane, go into the meeting, get back on the plane and you're home again. So um, I realize I need to prioritize an opportunity at some point in my life to go and see a bit more of Australia, because even though I've been into these beautiful states and territories, I would argue I've actually seen um, the salt of the earth really in those areas. So that's something I need to, to put on my bucket list. Yes, definitely. Going for work would be a bit different, but yeah, yes, it's inspiring you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I want to talk about today, you did talk about it a little bit before, but I guess what was your childhood like in relationship with food growing up? So in terms of my childhood, um, I remember my mother was sharing the story with me um, and unfortunately my mum passed away um, in 2015 and we had a really close relationship and I think the opportunity throughout my teens, um, uh, recognising obviously a, a lot of the challenges that she had to deal with with, my, um, with me experiencing eating disorder, but we would always just share stories of the past and I think that's always an important opportunity for families and people to um, to reflect on even the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to memories. But one of the things that she was telling me um, in relation to sort of, we were reflecting on my history with my eating disorder and where it all started and come from. And I remember she said, when I was little, um, her and my aunt had watched me playing on the beach. I must've been about three years old. And my aunt um, turned to my mother and said, that child's never gonna have a worry in the world because I was sort of so carefree and, you know, like everything was just, um, I wasn't worried about anything, you know, and, and sort of it was full of courage and, and no fear. Um, I had a wild imagination and sometimes that did get the better of me. I will be honest, I was a big daydreamer and, um, and I loved reading. And so my childhood in itself seemed, it didn't seem impacted up until, all right, so maybe about the, the age of around, well, I started to get sort of mixed messages around the age of three. And so I was very tall. And um, and I think it was interesting the way people framed the language and the way they communicated with me when it came to um, whether I had misbehaved or um, whether people would, you know, in conversation, compare me to another child. And so these are the things that, you know, if you think of a little person trying to kind of understand the language of adults, I would always be told things like, um, gosh, you're a big girl. Or um, if I was told off, I remember quite a few times when I was told off a lot, I was quite naughty. I should, I will take full ownership of that. I was very mischievous. And I remember quite a few times being told, um, not from parents, but more from teachers in diff different environments, um, we expected more of you. And I think it was because I, I looked more mature, I think forgetting the age that my brain was still a three-year-old or a four-year-old or five-year-old, but because I looked a little bit older, there was this expectation that I would know better and be more mature in the way I thought and behaved. And I think that in itself then started to impact the way in which I maybe thought I was, I didn't, I wasn't like my peers and maybe I should have been. And I couldn't quite navigate that. <clears throat> I wanted to flag that because my relationship with food was, was absolutely fine. I, I wasn't even a fussy eater. Um, in fact, you know, I loved food and, um, 
it wasn't, uh, I don't even recall any challenges specifically. But in the one of the things that I do remember, though, was um, family connection around food. And for me, sometimes there was that limited opportunity, bearing in mind that, you know, my mother was working full time and she had, I had two other siblings. My father was uh, owned his own business, so he was incredibly busy. But it was every now and then when, um, and, and I will flag also my siblings were quite far apart in age. But it was always those moments around whether we got, you know, that one afternoon on a Friday, we got donuts after school and it was a special treat, which is sometimes a lovely opportunity. Or on the weekends, my father happened to be home and, you know, in South Africa, rugby is a big thing as well. So the rugby would be on, not that I'd be watching it and my brother and I would be playing out in the backyard and then mum would bring in a, a plate of food and all of a sudden we were all, we would all gather around and connect. So for me, that was a really important part and something that I think perhaps I, I longed for more than I realized and so my relationship with food I think I made that connection at a really early age which I would say it started as I sort of started to hit my teens and started to face life and life's challenges it started trying late towards this food potentially providing some form of comfort so um, that only probably came at a later stage but um, I started to grapple around understanding that food would potentially influence my body and my body shape and size around the age of 10 when my friend um, uh, started to tell me that, you know, we need to dump on the scale and check our weight after we eat. And, you know, we didn't, we weren't worried about it, but then all of a sudden those things started to, to influence the way I thought about food and, and body size and that. So kids pick up everything, I guess, over time. Yeah, wow, definitely. With that friend, was it one friend that kind of influenced you in that way? Would you find it was a lot of things that influenced you? I think there was multiple things, if I'm really honest. I mean, my parents, um, and, you know, it's certainly no fault of theirs, um, you know, the world was always on a diet. So as you grow up, you become more aware of your um of your environment at home. So if mum and dad are on a diet or, or, or there's conversations and kids pick up everything, um, I think you become more aware of this um, this need for society to start to um, manage their body shapes and body sizes and there's conversations a lot around food and then as, as you grow up, you hear this more often. So there was multiple influences. Um, so my friend, I think there was also the pressure. She was in a similar experience where um, she was a, a taller girl. And um, it, I sort of, it was then that I realized, oh, you know, was this something that we needed to control? We weren't stressed or paranoid about it. It was just more, um, we were, I became more curious about it. But then also I had older friends as well. And they were in their teens. Um, I used to do drum majorettes. So they were, they were all in their teens and they would be, um, dieting and, and so yeah there was so many different things that um would get in the way I don't think they ever caused my eating disorder if I'm really honest I don't think my eating disorder and developing one was ever anyone's fault it also wasn't my fault it was just multiple influences that over time got in their way got in the way and did other people around you develop eating disorders from the dieting did you ever see that growing up um I wasn't 
I mean, bearing in mind, so I will be very transparent with everybody. So I'm 47. So my, most of my age growing up was in the 80s. And then so I had obviously my teens in the early 90s. Um, so yes, eating disorders were around undoubtedly, but we didn't have the information that we do now. I believe my aunt had an eating disorder and that's where I really first started to understand. Now, I wasn't very close. She lived overseas, but she did come a couple of times and I'd heard, um, I started to understand a bit more about her eating disorder and then I had seen a couple of articles in magazines that was probably my first exposure to an eating disorder if I'm really honest um and then I did go to boarding school in high school which um only for a year now that was I did develop an eating disorder before then so you know as I hit puberty I had multiple gynecological issues from multiple cysts on my ovary so my first experience um of sort of hitting um puberty was quite confronting and so I think um you know there was so many different different things that were getting in the way of my weight and size and and how I was experiencing puberty and so of course I went into to boarding school <laughs> and it was an all-girls boarding school um and then I learned a great deal as well there um I was never um I'd never sort of collectively rallied with anybody to to sort of behave in an eating disordered way but I then I started to be exposed more to to people that were experiencing eating disorders yeah but then I guess how did it then develop into disordered eating how did you kind of see that and I guess the negative effects that that would have yeah um so I guess in in the context of disordered eating I would probably say I grappled around that in before hitting high school. And so that's when I started to hit puberty um, and was almost um, uh, feeling like I needed to be in control then, learning from how adults um, would speak about their need to be in control of their weight and size. I started to realize as I was hitting my early teens that this was something that I needed to be responsible for to some degree. And that's when I would say it was more from a disordered eating context where I was up and down between different behaviors, whether I would take moments of restriction or cut foods out and or so, you know, and then I, I think I did start to um, grapple with the idea of purging. Um, I remember I got a, a bad result in one of my tests after a week of trying purging and I just would not have that at all. I was too much I had too much pressure to sort of perform really well. I put too much pressure on myself. So it was just like, no, if this is going to impact my <laughs> my results in school, then I'm just not going there. Um, it was more than when I went to the boarding school. So because of all the, the challenges that I had with um with my with puberty issues and the gynecological issues, I, I did gain weight quite rapidly. Um, and I think, you know, it was heartbreaking because I returned home and I think the responses from others around me, were, they were quite sort of taken aback and shocked. And it was so evident to me. Um, I was really aware of it and uncomfortable, but I didn't realize it was almost like I was frightened at the fact that I thought, oh, my God, this is actually impacting others around me. I couldn't quite understand that. And so that's when I uh, was even more concerned that people were potentially I'm just bearing in mind I'm assuming I'm upset about my weight gain and so then it was then that I started to um, feel that I was taking control of the situation so I was so, first officially diagnosed as having anorexia nervosa at the age of um, probably about I was 13 but um, 
I would I definitely sort of started to develop issues earlier. And um yeah, I think and from then I sort of morphed between um I think they would identify as atypical anorexia now, but um certainly got um you know put myself in dangerous positions and then also really grappled and struggled with bulimia nervosa as well. Yeah. And were people quite, I guess, concerned when they saw you experiencing these eating disorders? Were you able to, I guess, reflect? Were they able to kind of speak to you about it? Um, you know, Shane, bearing in mind, I, I'm really conscious of the, the uh, we call them a tricks, but um, in Australia, see the year 12s, had become really aware of my, um, there was a stage where I just simply wasn't eating. Now, so regardless of body size and weight loss, um, anyone that doesn't eat, um, if you don't have any nutritional intake, it'll impact you. Like it will, you know, the things that you can happen to you when you're restricted are frightening. And it, like I said, it, you know, it just goes to show it didn't matter what size I was at the time or regardless of weight loss, I think it became incredibly evident when I was restricting because I started to change, I started to become unwell, I was um, fatigued. I think they, oh God, I, was, I think I was talking my sleep at night. There was just so much that, um, it, you know, I sort of um, rapidly declined and they, they did express their concerns. They had no tools in terms of how to manage that. And in fact, when I was hospitalized then, just for, uh, I, was, I was hospitalized for about a week or so, even then I would argue that the, that the clinicians there and, potentially even a psychologist that I ended up seeing had anything to sort of work with um, to understand a bit more in eating disorders. Um, so, you know, really, I think they did the best that they could under the circumstances um, at the time. They certainly didn't have the resourcing that we have now. No. And I guess because you experienced your eating disorder for so long, I guess if you could talk about how long that was and I guess how the treatment and I guess the support kind of progressed and changed throughout that. Um, so look, if I'm if I'm to be honest, my eating disorder experience um, went well over three decades. Um, so um, I think after that, I sort of went in and out of um, uh, treatment with a psychologist, but I didn't see a dietitian, um, and I wasn't seeing a GP regularly. Um, this was in boarding school, and I think I very much. Um, my bulimia behavior was was quite um, was a significant concern if I'm honest if and if I reflect on that and I think that just continued to progress um, because I didn't look um, like I was very underweight I think it was very easy to mask um, but I would argue that I was um, I was in I was well by any means even if I presented that way um, I would probably say the only after that, I really didn't get in much intervention and support. Um, and I was able to sort of mask it, not that I really wanted to, but um, I guess my eating disorder was a way to, well, I felt to cope with the degree of distress of, of um, depression and anxiety. And there were some other challenges in, in my family environment in school. And then I just I, I just continued to decline significantly, not just with the eating disorder, but also just with depression and anxiety and struggled a lot with suicidality. And so it was a real, um, it was a really dark time um, in terms of just not knowing how to grapple with that. So I guess my teens predominantly from the age of 15 were, um, I think they, I was placed in a treatment center. They didn't know how to treat eating disorders. It was more a drug and alcohol a rehabilitation and they were trying out a program for eating disorders so 
think they called me a guinea pig in that environment, which was really interesting. Um, I would never call anyone a guinea pig, but I just remember that language coming up. Um, and so to be honest, I, I was seeing a lovely psychologist over time. So she was really supportive. Um, I wouldn't say specialized or informed on eating disorders, but definitely um, walked alongside me as much as she could. Um, they came to Australia as well, and um, I wasn't well at all. Um, I did see a psychologist for a little while, but uh, I struggled to connect. It wasn't special. He wasn't specialized in eating disorders, but I think I was, I just had a lot of distress around um, treatment. We didn't really know how to navigate it. And also we were pretty under-resourced in the public system. It, um, I was able to kind of, I don't think I ever had a moment of recovery or respite, but I was able to mask how well I was doing. I, I guess where things really um, made a significant turn um, was towards my late, late, later part of my 20s when I was working. Again, I'd been grappling with an eating sort of for quite a long time, but I had a significant relapse. Um, the relapse was that profound that I um, developed superior mesenteric artery syndrome, which basically means my duodenum blocked and had to have a life saving major surgery. Um, and um, I was incredibly underweight. Um, very malnourished and so things declined rapidly after then it was during that time that I would say the trajectory after that was for years um I was in the public system so I um there, I became sort of um I think the process like, it was a bit of a yo-yo between a public mental health ward and the hospital ward and no one really knew where I belonged or where I was meant to be so I was either too sick of the mental health ward at times or um, but then the, the hospital ward would struggle to say, well, we have someone with a, a mental illness, so how do we manage this? Um, unfortunately, and I have to believe that it came from lack of understanding, but the treatment that I received at the time was over the years actually was really punitive, unfortunately. Um, I guess I'd argue that the intention was to punish me per se, but I think there was this misconception that I would snap out of it if I was almost frightened out of the eating disorder and so unfortunately um it was a really traumatic few years um and I didn't have access to the to private system um and as it was WA was incredibly under-resourced as well so that took up a well over a 10-year period I think um to the point actually where we started to prepare for my um we were told to prepare for my end of life I did gr gratefully though I have to say through that experience and fortunately they had developed um an eating disorder program here in Western Australia. It was um, a set of clinical interventions, which I'm sure many, many people would know the amazing resources they've developed. And I was probably one of their first patients in 2004 or five, I think. But by that point I was so unwell. So I think it was really hard to um, keep going with the treatment because obviously there's limitations, but I was in the night of hospital as well. So um, yeah, so that was the significant core of my treatment. Um, I did have an opportunity to go to a private clinic eventually towards the latter part, but was um, considered treatment resistant. I think that's what was the term that I was, was used. And because I had severe and enduring, um, I guess, the perception, particularly in this environment, there were some wonderful clinicians who were willing to walk with me. And by that point, I had the most um, wonderful dietitian. I had a lovely psychologist and I had a good multidisciplinary team. 
but the private hospital um, you were concerned about having me because of the risks associated with the extent of my history. So unfortunately went back to old dark territory. Interestingly though, um, the psychologist that I was working with at the time reached out to a public hospital here. It's this old, ugly hospital, but it's, um, it, it, I guess there was an opportunity to go and sort of have some form of treatment in the, on, on a normal general, general med medical ward. And it was probably an opportunity in that treatment. Um, well, it wasn't technically treatment, but it was this team that hadn't been trained or supported on how to understand eating disorders. They weren't specialized, but they realized how many people were presenting to general hospitals and just felt this accountability to get some training and support to understand eating disorders more. So even though my experience there wasn't, it didn't reach recovery, it, it planted this incredible seed because I actually just realized how we could shift the ways in which we provide treatment for people or support people. So rather than sort of this expectation of me reaching recovery, I guess it was their compassion and empathy in that experience that significantly shifted um, the way in which I, I saw people could be treated or supported, but I felt like I almost needed to support them in that process too. And, and that's when I, I realized I wanted to expose the eating disorder and help them as much as I possibly could. That was a really long-winded part of it, but yes, it's a long history, so it's hard to put it in a nutshell. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I guess you talked a little bit about compassion. So what would be then the importance of compassionate care um, for eating disorder treatment for you? I think, um, I think it's such an important part to understand and unpack collectively, not only with people with lived experience of an eating disorder or living experience, but also with clinicians and those supporting people. Um, you know, there's so much power in the in in understanding empathy, and that empathy is just very much being with people and not trying to fix the situation, but more just being with people in in really challenging circumstances or not trying to perceive that we understand where someone's at. So I think it's really important that if that value is not brought into the context of therapy or treatment, then I would argue that it can actually work um, effectively. But in saying that, you know, it's this wonderful complement of all the multiple things that need to come to, into consideration with treatment for an eating disorder. And so when it comes to compassion, compassion, I think, is recognizing that there is this person, this individual behind this really punicious illness and that compassion is having supportive boundaries having an upper hand over the eating disorder um be willing to walk with that person even during the those really sort of multiple layers of ups and downs that tend to happen in the process of treatment it is also not um colluding with the eating disorder so the compassion is very much I see you as the individual and I will be damned if I'm going to invest my time in the eating disorder. And that can actually be compassion, right? Because I think compassion is communication. Um, bearing in mind that some people when they, you know, you could be incredibly well and high levels of distress and how you communicate a process or an understanding of treatment then could be very misconstrued and misunderstood. But there's that willingness to then come back and have that conversation again and again, if you need to, and again, and again. And it's, you know, 
the willingness to take a person-centered approach to realize, yes, this person with this eating disorder, this is, yes, the treatment and the support that they need, but maybe we also need to then consider what's important to them outside of the eating disorder. You know, what does quality of life look like for them? What is the environment like in their circumstances so that we don't put people in boxes? Because ultimately, you have an eating disorder, but at the end of the day, people will go out there and, you know, have other different challenges that we have to navigate. So compassion is this willingness to kind of walk through this really messy journey. <laughs> um, and, and I think also be patient. I think it's important for clinicians and health professionals to be patient with themselves as well. Because I would argue many people that come into treatment are actually expecting you as, as therapists or to fix them. I think it's more where therapists are willing to support the person to find ways to fix themselves. Yes, definitely. And I guess then when would you say things started to change for you in your recovery and you did start to um, recover and become recovered? You know, just I think it's important for me to say that I think, you know, people have these histories with an eating disorder and I wholeheartedly believe that yes, a person can recover from an eating disorder. But as I was talking to you about all the multiple layers and influences in people's lives and other situations, I think for some people recovery in, um, if we look at it as the whole package, um, you know, some people have coexisting and co-occurring challenges. And so for me, um, I, I think it was the acceptance of knowing that I was probably always going to be on this ongoing healing process. I stopped exploring the idea of recovery because I think what I did was, um, and, and I probably sometimes would even encourage, depending on the person's experience, to sometimes not even focus on the, that conversation around recovery, but just start to take the steps forward towards healing. Because I think recovery for me was too far and I was never going to achieve it in the way that I understood it or had heard um, what recovery was. And so I knew I could do the eating disorder well. I, was, I had no crystal ball to say I could do recovery well. But I think I didn't, I did give up completely. Um, my mother, um, I had the privilege of caring for my mother until she, um, she, she unfortunately had a terminal diagnosis and the privilege of caring for her until the end of life. And some people think that said that it was my turning point, but it, it, I guess what the turning point in, in that experience was I had said to my mom during the time, uh, and, and I'm grateful that we could have that sort of transparent conversation, how much I just wanted to go with her. And if I'm, if I'm just brutal about it, I was determined that once she had passed away, that that would be, I would find a way to just find her. And, and that was going to be the situation, but I wasn't going to tell her that. Interestingly, when I said to her, um, I want to go with you, she said, oh, I know you do. She said, she said, but no, my girl, you're going to live. And I never forgot that conversation because I thought how after everything that she had seen and experienced, could she even believe and hold on to hope in me as a person? And that was just profound. I just thought after everything this woman had gone through and the trauma of experiencing my eating disorder as a mother, I just couldn't believe that she even felt then in her, in her illness that I would somehow live and survive this. After, this, after that, things were really difficult. And I think um, I didn't think I was going to come out of it. And in fact, I don't know if I wanted to anymore. I was exhausted. Um, I had been turned away from most treatment opportunities. I didn't have any access to any patient setting. But I wasn't going to go down without a fight. So I 
resented my eating disorder from day dot. I had, um, I thought it was this pernicious bully. I felt like it was this experience that I was in an abusive relationship with. So I thought, right, well, if I'm going to go down, I'm taking it down with me. And so I took this approach that I was going to expose it for what it was. And so I decided to, so the challenge was that I was going to find ways in which I could bring my lived experience to support clinicians to understand or professionals and researchers to understand eating disorders more. So I thought, well, at least if I went down with it, I had, you know, exposed it more to support people moving forward. The thing is, I hadn't anticipated I'd keep going. <laughs> and so I did. And um, and that was years ago. And so I just kept going and kept going. And I will be honest, I got up and I fell down several times. And there were times where I fell down. It was so seductive. I wanted to stay down because it was something I was used to. But with the support of a, a wonderful multidisciplinary team who um, were incredibly patient, I think maybe they didn't necessarily see the recovery journey for me. I think they were willing to kind of tell me to get back up again. And so the more they persisted with that, the more I kept getting up. And so every time I got up, it became easier than, than the last time I fell. And so, and then I just kept going. And, and so the process of learning, experiencing things like experiencing both anorexia and, and shifts in body size and bulimia as well. And in fact, there was experiences in being in a much larger body and having the eating disorder throughout my history. I had to kind of navigate what recovery or healing looked like from all of that. And it's taken time, bearing in mind that I put my body through hell and back. Um, so, you know, there's been repercussions. I won't lie to you. There's been ongoing challenges and I'll probably have to heal with those for the rest of my life. But in terms of my recovery from an eating disorder, having the upper hand in my life, absolutely not. In fact, it, it's not welcome in the front door. But if I have any any signs that it's knocking, um, I never rest on my laurels. I think I've, I've made a decision in my life to never become complacent. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Would you say that I guess it's the hope, holding that hope for other people that I guess keeps you um, fighting against the eating disorder and keeping it out of your life mm -hmm. um, when it does kind of rear its presence? The thing is, um, Jess, I think, and I have really challenging conversations in, in, the, in the area of eating disorders. So I will speak to topics like involuntary treatment and, you know, severe and enduring eating disorders. So I come from it in a very thoughtful way around actually for some people, what recovery may look like or healing will look like for one person could be significantly different. And I guess that's that importance of right of that early intervention. But I don't think, um, I think every single person out there is deserving of um, of being heard and seen. Um, and so that's the importance of holding hope. So holding hope isn't so much about necessarily always just that idea of reaching recovery. It's holding hope for that, the worth of this person. It's it's trying to build the, the need for self-worth is profoundly significant in the experience of healing from any mental health challenge, especially an eating disorder. If, that's, if we don't build the foundations of self-worth, I would argue we could actually get to a true, genuine pathway towards recovery. And that's a hard yard and that's a hard piece of work to do. But I think for me, that is that, that ongoing process. And so for me, um, 
I know I'm far worth the experience of an eating disorder. I'm far worth having something, having the upper hand and bullying and taking advantage of me. And so is anybody else. But I'm also unique and I'm also an individual and my quality of life will be different to somebody else. And so when we can give people the opportunity to explore what quality of life will look like for them, that to me, I think is holding hope in believing that actually someone is so much more than an eating disorder. Um, so for me now, I think that whole healing process is it like for me, I work in the field of eating disorders. It's what I do, but an eating disorder will never, ever define who I am again. No. You talked a little bit about the process of building self-worth, I guess. How did you see that, I guess, for you and how did that, yeah. How did that process go for you? Well, um, that's the hard yards, I think, because I guess the seductive nature of an eating disorder is to some extent it is quite black and white. We can base our feelings on straightforward responses like, you know, we can make it all about food. We can make it all about weight. Um, but eating disorders are so much deeper than that. And so I think it was easier to accept the eating disorder as my pathway as my identity as who I was because I thought that would just pretty much come up with all the answers and I could um I didn't have to do all the hard work to realize that actually I had to delve a bit deeper into who I was and what was it that I felt so worthless about and why why did I feel so worthless about myself that's been a painful walk and it is a challenging walk and I think the sooner someone can do that the better um, and especially um, and there are some wonderful health professionals and clinicians that will walk through people in that and so you start to develop your own tools but I was so tempted to not go there because I was so worried of of failing or not getting it right and that's probably something I'll always work on in my life in saying that um, eating disorders are not functional illnesses so to even have a chance we can we can yes we can get some people I don't know how they function. They manage to get university degrees and um, and and be perceived to be doing really well. But the reality is, is that eating, living with an eating disorder is not something that can become functional over time. And I can wholeheartedly say that um, I don't think any eating disorder is worth a person um, being taken down with it. So I guess my point being, if anybody out there is a sort of experience an eating disorder and it just seems the as the most understandable way to live life, I can wholeheartedly say that as challenging as the road ahead may be, you do need to start to determine for yourself why having an eating disorder, how it defines you. Um, and that comes from deep personal work. Very tricky to do when you're significantly malnourished because it's hard to see the wood for the trees. But if you give yourself a, an opportunity to take a few steps forward slowly but surely, you'll see your mind and your your heart start to shift. And I guess that's the that's the connection. Rather than just your mind and physical health starting to shift, um, when you start to just kind of just take one put one foot in front of the other, you start to feel your heart shift, and that's where the difference starts to happen. And then you start to see yourself beyond the eating disorder and. Sometimes you might take a few steps back again because you don't like it and you don't potentially like working through that because it can be painful for some. And then you start to see the world in a whole different lens. Um, I just wish I could take people through that 
process um, and only hope that they will hold on to hope that what I'm sharing with them is an experience that's certainly worth giving a go. Yes, and I love that you shared that people should come out of that. Well, it's very hard to, the thought of trying to come back to your heart when there's so much going on in your head and so many things from other people and society and just being able to hold on to that empathy, that compassion, that heart space when things are at its most difficult. I think one thing I will say, Jess and I, I know people have spoken about this before, but I was supporting somebody this year, um, you know, working in the space of peer work every now and then I will walk along someone who has given up um, and, and just doesn't see another side. There is something to be said about pulling out a photograph of when you were this little child. And I think, and even just putting it in a frame. And I recognize that some people had traumatic childhoods. It's not about kind of thinking about what that experience was. Uh, with 99.9% .9 of people experience eating disorders are compassionate, thoughtful, loving people. And um, which is even more reason why an eating disorder has and should have no part in their lives because it's so against who people are. But look at that child, honestly, and ask yourself, would you do anything to hurt that child? Would you do anything to protect that child or anything to, to sort of avoid that child going through any form of pain and struggle? And that's where it brings you back to the heart of yourself and your, your place in this world. And so if you have a therapist or you have somebody that's supporting you along the way, maybe that's something to consider, you know, sort of pulling out a photograph of when you were little where, you know, you had no idea of what was ahead um, and treat that treat that child with compassion um with support and do the best that you can to support that child to find a way to have a quality of life because ultimately at the end of the day that child is you yes definitely and like, like you talked about at the start of the podcast as well those childhood experiences and the importance of those childhood experiences and connection around food and memories and the good memories around food before I guess that relationship got a bit more mixed yeah and I mean look we know that you know and I'm going to sound um like a broken record you know look sure food is medicine absolutely in fact you, uh, you know even in the areas of palliative care and, and and working with people that are having cancer I would never ever encourage anyone to restrict or not eat it just messes with your head but food can be enjoyable um it's not the be all and end all of your life though and I think it's looking at life beyond that that's eating disorder is convincing people that it is all about the food and the weight um and the truth of it is get that out the bloody way so that you can get an opportunity to to heal all those other important things and start healing your heart as well because i'm telling you now and, and eating disorder will hijack that and again looking back on that child no one um that child does not deserve anything to hijack its heart no i love that get the food and the weight out of the way because there's so much more to life there's just so much more to living and being on this earth absolutely and you know like I said it's the good the bad and ugly but there's some pretty beautiful things out there as well yes exactly you need the ups and the downs and the exploration and being able to grow and um, do the things you want to do and that's the healing I think over time yeah yes definitely 
Well, thank you so much for this episode, Shannon. It has been incredible. Oh, just a, a, such a lovely, thoughtful questions. Thank you so much. I so appreciate your, your thoughtfulness around the important questions that you asked. So thank you. Oh, thank you too. Well, that's the end of today's episode. Please subscribe, leave us a comment or a review. If you would also like to learn more about Body Matters services, you can check out our website at bodymatters.com.au. Thanks for listening.